0: Hi everyone, welcome to Rise for Racial Justice, the podcast. I'm Bernetta Parson and this is our very first episode. We look forward to bringing you some of the finest thought leaders in the anti-racist and education realm with the goal of sharing resources for liberation, transformation, consciousness raising, and anti-racist action. Our first guest is Dr. Colette Kahn, who is co-founder of Rise for Racial Justice. Dr. Kahn is an associate dean and associate professor in the School of Education at the University of San Francisco. Dr. Kahn writes and teaches about critical race theory, community college partnerships, intergroup dialogue in higher education, racial identity development, and racism in higher education. Her work has been published in multiple journals, and she is the co-author of the book, Academic Activism. Prior to her positions at USF, she was an associate professor, chair of the education department, and class advisor at Vassar College. She also worked as a math teacher, academic advisor, and coordinator for youth programs at the middle and high school levels needless to say she is one accomplished woman so colette tell me about how rise came to be well thank you for inviting me to be the first guest the tester guest on the podcast speaking of testing let's just make sure your sound is good okay so i was asking you um how did rise come to be
1: um so rise for racial justice um actually started uh, with a focus on increasing the racial literacy of uh, faculty, staff, and students at an undergraduate institution. Um, A number of BIPOC or students of color um, had been experiencing racial microaggressions um, and were really struggling to have conversations about race with their peers, right? To kind of challenge some of those implicit biases that were playing out um, in the form of racial microaggressions in and out of the classroom. Um, And so we decided to create a center that offered race training uh, for students, staff, and faculty around the campus. And um, with the help of of Gretchen Lopez from Syracuse University and Charles Bailing from University of Michigan, um, We ended up creating a center, This obviously the Rise for Racial Justice Center, um, and out of that we were building curricula to, to go to different dorms, to go to different student meetings, to help facilitate conversations about race, and also increase folks' racial literacy, their understanding and their ability to really make sense of race and racism as it's playing out on the campus. The college itself uh, began to grow its own diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And they began to take on a lot of that. Um, and so we also were able to then broaden our work and we moved beyond the campus and started working with K-12 teachers. Um, the student population who ran the center, it was hard to create a structure that was going to be beyond them right when they graduated. And so they reached back out to me and was like, well, you know, can you hold this for us? Can you as a faculty member actually hold Rise for Racial Justice? Um, because the the transition among students as folks graduated um, felt a little bit choppy to them. Um, so at that point, I, I started uh, helping to coordinate Rise for Racial Justice. We focused primarily on K-12 teachers and parenting adults. Because much of the campus work was being held by the new uh, kind of diversity initiative at Vassar. Those courses were, uh, through the generosity of a committee at Vassar called the Good Neighbors Committee, um, teachers were able to take that class, parents were able to take that class for free. Um, we per- were able to purchase their books, we were able to kind of bring them together around dinner during our session, um, and it was, it was, you know, just a really great experience. When I left Vassar for the University of San Francisco, one of the things that I did was I brought RISE with me. Um, we still collaborate with Vassar. Um, Kimberly Williams Brown, who I think is going to also be a guest at some point on this podcast, yes. um, continued doing the work out of Vassar College, um, and that's called the Intergroup Dialogue Collective now. Um, but out of USF, we continue to do the same work. Um, it has increased, I would say, in terms of the uh, amount of work that we do uh, during the uprisings in summer 2020, we had uh, for 25 spots in our summer course, we had over 600 people apply for those spots. Um, And so I, you know, reached out to a number of other facilitators and asked that they would volunteer for Rise over the summer. And we were ultimately able to uh, teach about 250 of those folks who had applied for the spots. Uh, but that wasn't everyone. And so what we've been doing over the last year is increasing our offerings, trying to get as many folks in the class as are interested. And we've also grown uh, our our course offerings so that folks can stay engaged in this work. One of the new courses that we're particularly proud of is the community of practice course, which um, is for folks who have started this journey, they've taken our course or taken a course elsewhere, and they need to be in a space where they are getting support from other peers who are doing similar work. And so that's been, you know, to to create that kind of community for folks who might be isolated at their own institutions, not have anybody to do work with, but yet they're able to come together uh, once a week in community to talk about what they're working on um, and to get some feedback on that or to get some new ideas, thoughts and resources um, is, you know, the work that we're doing now. So it's been a lovely growing over the last uh, year and a half or so, we have an incredible team of facilitators um, who put their you know, their hearts into all of the work that they do and take it as it should be taken so seriously around um, helping educators and parenting adults make sense of how race is playing out, right? How racism plays out in their own lives and in their classrooms and in their families.
0: Got it. Got it. So RISE for Racial Justice courses are aimed at parents and teachers. And I know that you started out in the middle, high school level. How does that previous work inform the work that you do with RISE? Mm. Uh,
1: You know, as, as a, you know, growing up as a Black child in predominantly white schools, um, I recognized the kind of racial trauma. I didn't obviously have the language for it at that time. But as I think back on it, I was like, I, the incredible racial trauma that I experienced in those spaces and how hard it was. Um And, you know, by the time I got to the ninth grade, I'd actually dropped out of school Um and told my parents I am not going back. And, you know, that lasted. And what was surprising to me is my mom is a pretty fierce person. And uh, I'm surprised she didn't make me go back. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I don't know what it was about how I expressed my desire to drop out that she was like, I'm going to need to leave this alone. Um, but my dad eventually came back and was like, hey, you know, if you don't go back, uh, I think I'd been out for a couple months at that point, really like kind of sure I wasn't going back, trying to figure out well, what else was I going to do. You know, uh, I was probably at 14. And I think he, you know, like, what was I going to do, really? And uh, my dad was like, you know, it'd be a shame for you to have to repeat the ninth grade if you ever changed your mind. Why don't you just go back and finish out the last couple of weeks? They said, if you go back now, you won't have to repeat. So I did go back. Um, and ultimately, a, a good friend of mine, also a student of color, was like, hey, I found this other school. It was like, all people of color. And you're like, you know, it's, it's going to be great. Um, and so I did end up going back to school and graduating. So, uh, but I think that experience and and what it had meant for me, uh, you know, K-16, um, it just felt important to be doing this kind of work. And then as a teacher, seeing, you know, how students of color experienced education, just classrooms, right? And how they experienced out of classroom spaces and being a teacher and being in those teacher meetings and hearing how teachers were talking about them and, you know, how we challenge and push back, but they felt really solid and secure in their belief that it was the kid's problem or it was, you know, it wasn't didn't deserve to or didn't belong in or you know whatever you know othering or um, marginalizing language they used at the end of the day. What they were saying was it wasn't me. I'm a great teacher. <laughs> it's not the school. We're a great school. It's not our policies. Our policies are incredible, right? Like and so just kind of having heard some of those conversations, um, I have always been interested in how do we. Make education for and by Black people. Um, and so that's why I went back to graduate school. I think that relates to, you know, what I like to, uh, do research around. And it relates directly to, you know, to the work that we're doing at Rise. I I think it's about, I hope it's about creating liberatory possibilities that, I don't know, create the possibility for Black wellness in education. I've been really inspired by folks out of like apocalyptic education, and uh, folks out of the abolitionist teaching network, and um, the Black homeschool movement that's happening right now. People, Black people, are engaged with this question of how do we bring liberatory possibility to education for Black youth. That is the historical trajectory, right, of what is meant to be Black.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. We've known each other for a little bit, but I did not know that that was your experience as a young person. It actually gives me a lot of insight into how you hold space for students in the classroom. So let me ask, what do you think about, um, or what do you think is the hardest concept for educators to grapple with um, in RISE courses? And it may be people of color, it may be white people, um, but what do you think is the the hardest concept for them? Um, You know, I think,
1: first of all, I mean, when we look at who our teaching course is, it's predominantly white, it's predominantly white women. Um, And so even at RISE, you know, we of course see that playing out in terms of who takes our classes. Although we always have um educators of color, they some they oftentimes bring a different perspective and, and different questions, different different concepts, different things that they're trying to wrap their heads around. And I'm not, you know, I'm not essentializing this and saying all, you know, mm-hmm. BIPOC folk think the same way, all white folk things think that way. But that's just to say that they've had their own experiences in the field of education and they uh oftentimes have already thought a lot about race, um, you know. I think it's hard for folks to wrap their heads around what is race and what what is racism, right? Like we've all been socialized. I'm thinking about Bobby Haro's cycle of socialization um, to deeply invest in and believe ideologies that don't serve us, right, and don't don't tell us the truth about race. And so, I think it's hard for folks to wrap their heads around. Uh, what is race in the first place, right? Like, uh, as service providers, as teachers, right, who are, they're part of their identity is like, I'm good people. I'm a good person and I'm, I'm working for too hard for too little money. And, uh, I don't see race, right? Like I see all my kids the same. They, they, you know, I love them all the same. And that language is what, right, they believe they're supposed to say. But, you know, when you tell me as a black person, you don't see race, you're saying that you don't see how race is important in this world, that you don't see how my trip to school is might be different than yours because I'm vulnerable for being pulled over for driving while black. Right. Like there's a lot that you're saying in that statement when you say I don't see race. What I think you're saying is you don't want to see race. Right. Or Mm -hmm. you are afraid to see race and to acknowledge how. Actually, important races and how you make decisions, right? Um And so I think that's kind of the first thing that's hard for people to wrap their heads around. What does it mean for race to be a social construct to be not real and real at the same time? Right, like they have no exactly real meaning. There's no difference, right? But at the same time, we treat it as it as if it has meaning, and we treat people differently because of that, right? And not just differently as in like you know in a, a soft way, but in a life or death way. Um, and I think racism itself as well, right? Like racism gets defined as like something interpersonal, like, Oh, that person is racist because they said X, Y, or Z, but we don't define racism. We don't include in our definition institutional and structural racism. We don't include cultural racism, right? We don't include internalized racism. And so that is kind of an eye-opening thought for people, right? That racism is endemic, right? As we yeah. always say. and it's like it's in the fibers, it grows here in a way that it doesn't grow anywhere else, um, and not to say that white supremacy is not global, but that it also takes on its own particular spin and flavor in the u s
0: so we've been talking on a larger scale, um but I want to bring it down to the personal, and we met um when I was directing a summer program, and you were a faculty member. And which you later directed um, the program yourself, um, there was a student in the class in that in that program, a white male um, who was from a rural part of the country, and he really kind of struggled with the diverse environment and um, he said some insensitive and problematic things, and he actually could have been sent home, but you kept him close so um, what was your thought process with him?
1: You know, I I had the privilege of working with uh, Vince Matthews, who was superintendent of San Francisco for a little while. But at the time that I got to work with him, he was co-directing a program called um, Oh Wow. What was it was called Summer Bridge at uh, a high school that I was where I was teaching, and. Um, I remember he had said, you know, it's easy to push a student out that you're struggling with. Um, but the hard work and the work that's important to do is pulling them in closer, right? Uh, taking responsibility, uh, and seeing if you could be a part of whatever journey it is that they need to take. Uh, and I also had another, have another mentor, Linda Treadway, who we had this, a similar situation happen in a program that we were teaching in. And she did the same thing. She like, she didn't kick the student out. She brought the student in closer, um, and then kind of created a shield so that other folks were not, uh, being harmed by that individual. And so I was like, you know, we can do this. We're a small program and, uh, that student is, to me, a victim of the same socialization, right? Like racism harms everyone, right? Not in the same way, but we're all dehumanized by it. And um in having conversations with that student and understanding how they got to the views that they had, I could understand. Like I, I I can't understand the view, but I can understand how they came to the view, right? And that they were open to some other views, but it hadn't occurred to them that there were other views, right? And so it felt like a possibility to bring that student in closer and and we did. We committed to meeting every night for like an hour (laughs) for however long the program was right and it was hard um and we remained committed to it right like that student kept showing up and i kept showing up and you know we put some ground rules in place to to make sure that the harm was 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 limited and uh in the community that we had in this program that that you and i were in together um It felt important and necessary at that time.
0: Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Dr. Colette Khan. If you're interested in learning more about racial literacy, please check out the Rise for Racial Justice website at riseforracialjustice.org and see what courses and resources are available. If you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. We are back with Dr. Colette Khan, co-founder of Rise for Racial Justice, an organization that offers anti-racism training. I want to ask, what keeps you motivated in this particular political climate?
1: Hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that a friend of mine and I write about all the time is like the messiness of the work. Like, I could certainly answer that question, be like, "Here's what keeps me motivated." But I'm gonna just <laughs> be honest. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, I think that it benefits all of us to not gloss over it and make it look like it's like neat and, and uh, you know pristine and everything has a place. Um, you know, I gotta say, this year was hard. And I've had lots of conversations with folks about like, I might be coming to the end of my ability to do this work, right? Like it just, um it's tax, it's just, it's stressful facilitating conversations about race. Like you're holding a lot while people are working through their stuff. And like, and when people work through their shit, that shit can be messy. And it sometimes goes all over the place, all over you, all over everybody else, <laughs> like hot mess. And um and it can be hurtful at I, th- I you know I'm, i think on some level facilitate as a black person facilitating about race there's no way you can do that without experiencing trauma and heart like I, I don't think you can you can name that it's happening in the moment and you can you know work towards uh healing and yet it still happens right cuz people are still working through their stuff you know there have been nights when i couldn't sleep feeling that kind of weight of responsibility it was it's not mine to carry right and yet i can't help but do so um or those those class periods where someone um you know despite how we've set up the space for dialogue gets triggered right gets angry um or is, is crying Um and sometimes that anger that emotionality is directed at you that feels hard too
0: <laughs> right
1: you know and it, it, i think in some ways it's my job as a facilitator to hold space right i i i agree to that when i agreed to facilitate and it doesn't mean that it doesn't come without some costs and You know, sometimes people ask for too much, right? Like I've agreed to facilitate the space and I have not agreed to all of these other things that are happening. Mm. And so it's it's a constant negotiation. It's a constant reminder about like, here's what this space is. Here's what we're doing here. And it's not actually that other thing that you would like it to be. And also I feel like it's a super, like I feel honored and privileged to be asked to participate in somebody's journey, to participate in somebody's unlearning or uh, relearning or, you know, differently learning about what race and racism might mean. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I love the work. Like, I'd be, I don't know, I wouldn't know what to do. Well, being this whole last year online and being remote and the kids being around. um, Yeah. I had a great conversation with um, one of my nephews about debate and dialogue, you know, as it pertains to being a teenager. I was like, Hey, you've been listening, you've been listening. (laughs) (laughs) So. Uh, I can't do anything else I'd want to do or dedicate my time and energy to if i if not to family, where else you know where else do I put my time during the day uh I can't imagine anything else I would want to do
0: okay before we go, Can you share what is lighting you up? What are you reading now? Mm. Woo! okay, so <laughs> you know one of the things
1: that, while we've been. Quarantined and you know worried and scared and anxious and all of you know all of the things that this last year has brought with the you know xenophobia and anti black racism and covid all like all of that um one of the things that I have been doing is just a lot a lot more reading than i have i find the time to do um uh, <clears throat> and so one of my my favorite books right now is "We Do This Till We Free Us." Um, I love 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 that book. For anybody who is, um, thinking about why police abolish right, like why punishment abolishment why 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 abolish the forms that we have now, right? Like schooling abolition, why why is that necessary? The book is beautiful. <laughs> I've also been really. Excited about uh, Ruth King's Mindful of Race and Rhonda McGee's Inner Work of Racial Justice, like bringing mindfulness to anti racism work um, has been really exciting. And then an the older book that I discovered at the beginning of the pandemic, of the uh, health pandemic, and it was written in 2018, so I was late to the game. Um is To Black Parents Visiting Earth, Raising Black Children in the Twenty First Century by Janet Stickman. I love that book. I love it so much. I do. And I love like I love the cover. I love like, I love the whole thing. Like, I love the it in my hand. I love the reading. Like inside, she's got like a playlist. I love the playlist. I love everything about that
0: book. So and what are you watching?
1: So I am watching right now Expanse. It is a sci-fi piece on, um, a books, an online bookstore that shall not be named here. And <laughs> you can read, it's essentially about systems of oppression that feels so relevant right now. Um, you know, there's a group of folks who live on the outer edges of, um, of the universe who are Mining for resources that folks on earth need. And so it's, of course, creating this, this class divide, this, you know, this hierarchical structure that doesn't feel good to the folks who are on the outer side. And it, it reminds me of this present moment, like how, how we're just, I think people are thankful to so-called frontline workers who are really, right, but in the expanse, they're not frontline, they're like outer edge workers, but when those frontline workers are delivering groceries and putting them you know driving the buses and you know keeping some of our essential services going um and those positions are occupied by people of color it just it thank you is not really enough like the, the question is why is it already that way what what is that structure that is creating this already existing workforce who we feel is expendable for the sake of everybody else. Right. Anyways, I've been reading too much into that. (laughs) But, um, I, yeah, I've been really loving that a lot.
0: Okay. And what are you listening to?
1: Hmm. That is a good one. Um, I have been listening to it podcast wise. Um, I've been listening to Princess Hemphill stuff I really love. And Adrian Rue Brown has a podcast, uh, with her sister that I've been listening to. Um, I'm not, I don't listen to a lot of music, but I was at a webinar, um, and someone played, uh, who did they play? Uh, Jamila Woods and, um, the song Holy. I've been listening to that one, I'll repeat. And then with a little bit of uh, their Black soldier peppered in, but um, that's my new, that's my new uh, artist that I've been playing over and over again.
0: That was Dr. Colette Khan, educator extraordinaire co-founder of Rise for Racial Justice, co-author of Academic Activism. Check her out on the website, riseforracialjustice.org. Also, look for some of the really thoughtful articles she's published about racism and education. And I invite you back for our next episode when we continue the conversation about anti-racism and education on Rise for Racial Justice, the podcast.